If you would turn in your Bibles now to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. A brief passage, but a very important moment in Jesus' life for us to think about and, and apply to our supply as well. So Luke chapter 12, um, excuse me, Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. and going through uh, verse 16. Following the reading of scripture, we'll sing together the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. Let us bow, please, for a moment of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege to come to your word today, and we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds with your truth. I pray that all that is said will honor you and that you will help us to see your calling for us as we look at this passage as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand on the threshold of a new year. It's a time when we perhaps reflect on the things that have happened in the past year and think ahead toward uh, what we should be doing in the new year or what may be ahead of us. We, uh, there are those who love to make resolutions and uh, in terms of their planning for the new year. Um, the cynical among you will say, well, they're only making promises they don't intend to keep. And uh, I always look forward to breaking my first resolution because then I'm off the hook. I just uh, forget the rest of them. But reflecting on what's been behind, what's ahead is, is a valuable thing. Jonathan Edwards, in, um, uh, among his resolutions, one of his resolutions was that each day he would reflect on those things that he had done that were wrong and reflect on those things that he had done that were the right thing to do. And he would do that for every week, every month, and he would do that for the previous year. And so it's good for us to think about and reflect on uh, what we've been through, what we've gone through, and uh, perhaps anticipating a little bit of what might be ahead. But we don't know the future, so we don't want to get too wrapped up in all of that. But we want to follow the Lord. And in this passage today, we have Jesus coming to a very critical point in his ministry as Messiah, because he's going to select 12 men that he appoints or names as apostles, who will be the uh, significant part of uh, his ministry, part of the foundation of the church. 
As we look at this passage we've read today, what, we're, what I want to direct you to eventually as we go through along, uh, go through this is Jesus' preparation of himself for the selection of the apostles, then the selection itself, and then how we might apply the principle of calling to serve to our own life. Again, this is a very significant stage in Jesus' ministry because as the New Testament is going to unfold, as the Apostle Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And the apostles, the, the office of the apostle is going to be such a significant uh, aspect in the life of the church is to those men who, who will be given the authority to, found, to lay the foundation for the church. It's to those men who will be given the, uh, the writing of the new covenant scriptures, the New Testament that we have. Uh, those men are going to be laying the foundation. We don't have to continue to lay, lay that foundation. Uh, we uh, maintain it and we minister, but it's a very critical time with Jesus' institution of the apostolic office. But Jesus prepares himself to make the selection, to make the decision. And what we find in verse 12, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Now, we've already seen in Luke how it's a commonplace for Jesus to take time to pray to the Father and to fellowship with and commune with him in prayer. In uh, the fourth chapter, we're told Jesus at daybreak went out to a solitary place to pray. Often he was praying in light of things that were going to happen, people that he was going to heal, <clears throat> things that were going to be done. But he regularly did this. In the previous chapter, it talked about how Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So here what we see, before Jesus makes this selection, he spends the entire night in prayer with his father. An extended time of prayer. Have you ever considered or gone through an extended time of prayer? Uh, short prayers are fine. Flare prayers are absolutely necessary, but uh, there, there's a discipline to extended times of prayer. A youth camp I was a part of years ago, one of our goals for the week was to teach the young people the discipline of extended time of prayer. And so on the first day of, of camp, we had a 15 minutes of prayer, of prayer. And we gave them guidelines and and procedures for how they could do this. Then the day number two came and we prayed for 30 minutes. And day number uh, three came and we prayed for 45 minutes and day number four came and we prayed for an hour. Now at the beginning of the week, those young people didn't believe when we, us when we told them, you're gonna be able to pray by the end of the week for an entire hour on your own. And sometimes you and I need to think about the discipline of extended prayer. Or maybe it's at a time when you're thinking through a decision. Uh, maybe it's just you're wanting to understand God's word a little better. But you 
you and I at times, and again, short prayers are fine, but there are times maybe that we need to discipline ourselves to spend an extended time in prayer. And that's what Jesus did. And John Calvin writes about this. He's applying it to the selection of ministers and churches. But he reminds us if Christ needed this, you and I for sure need it. He writes, this example ought to be regarded by us as a perpetual rule to begin with prayer when we are about to choose pastors to churches. Otherwise, what we attempt will not succeed well. And certainly our Lord prayed, not so much on his own account, as to lay down a rule for us. We are deficient in prudence and skill. And though, and though our wisdom were of the highest order, nothing is more easy than to be deceived in this matter. Though the election were conducted in the very best manner, all will be unsuccessful unless the Lord take under his guidance those who are elected and furnish them with, this, with the necessary gifts. Uh, God has earned, provided for the care of his church and he goes on to, to write, if he who was full of the Holy Spirit implored the Father with such ardor and earnestness to preside in the election, how much greater need have we to do so? Jesus has reminded us, apart from me, you can do nothing. And if the perfect Son of God needed an extended time of prayer, how much more do we need uh, times of prayer with our God and with our Father. Well, the morning comes and Jesus actually calls these men into service. It says, when morning came, he called his disciples. That was probably the larger group of disciples. He had many other followers that were following him. And he called his, all his disciples to him. And he chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles, the, or some of your translations have named. The idea of naming or designating them is that he appointed them to this role in this office. He was setting them apart for this particular purpose. It was a sovereign election. Uh, Jesus later on in the upper room will tell the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. The number 12 was significant. It should have been significant for believing Jews in that day. It certainly is significant in thinking the foundation of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel, now the foundation of the church is going to be in the 12 apostles. <clears throat> and the new Jerusalem will have 12 foundation stones in the names of the 12 apostles. It's a significant aspect of the foundation of the church. And so it's an important part of what Jesus is doing here. Uh, turn to Ephesians 4 for a moment. <clears throat> Ephesians 4. Keep, keep your finger in Luke uh, 6. We'll come back to it. And then keep your finger in Ephesians 4 because we'll come back to that. <clears throat> but just for the moment, turn to Ephesians 4. And after beginning the chapter talking about how Jesus ascended on high and gave gifts to men, he's going to list in particular... 
uh, uh, four offices that he gave to the church. So verse 11, Ephesians 4.11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, and some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. And that last office could be grouped, pastor, teacher, as one particular office. So there's four offices given here in this verse. And going along with John Owen and others, I, I take it that what Paul is giving us here is he's giving us three extraordinary offices and then one ordinary office. And the three extraordinary offices, that of apostle, that of prophet, and that of evangelist, were given as the foundation stones of the new covenant church. And God was going to use them to lay that groundwork. And uh, once that foundation is built, then it's going to be maintained by the work of the pastor teacher. Now, the words in and of themselves have other more general meanings. Apostle, in the most general sense, simply means messenger. In fact, in Philippians, Paul will say, Epaphroditus was your messenger, the, Philipp uh, the church of Philippi's messenger, apostle, to me. So in the most general sense, uh, apostle means messenger, someone who's representing someone else. Of course, prophets had a role, not just foretelling, but even more importantly, telling forth the, uh, the truth of God. So they had a, an ordinary ministry. Evangelists, of course, we still need those who will share the gospel. And the, the preacher, the pastor is called to uh, do the work of an evangelist in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. But Jesus is establishing the church in that first generation. And so to apostles and to prophets and to evangelists, he's giving the responsibility and the role of building the foundation of the church. He's giving to them the ecstatic gifts that were needed to affirm their authority. How do we know they're an apostle? Well, they are able to deal with demons and they were able to heal diseases. They're given ecstatic gifts as a demonstration of the power God is uh, pouring forth in them to lay the foundation of the church. And that's what these 12 apostles were to be. And then once the foundation is laid in that first century, uh, we don't longer, no longer need those ecstatic gifts. We have the word of God and it's the pastor teacher who God gives to maintain the church and the progress of the church and the ministry of the church and that carries on through the rest of time. Well, if you come back to Luke 6, we look at this, this group of 12 that Jesus picks and here in, in Luke 6, it's Simon in, verse, in verses um, 14 and 15, for 14 through 16. <clears throat> Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So we have this list there. There's, this list of names is given four times in the, the New Testament. Uh, there are parallel lists in Matthew and also in Mark. Uh, 
and then there, and of course in Luke, and then the fourth list is in Acts chapter one, and there it's only 11 because Judas Iscariot is dead. And so you have these four listings of uh, the apostles and just a few comments regarding the list. Uh, Peter is first in every list, which I get a great deal of comfort from. It reminds us of the great kindness and love and mercy of God that he takes a denier of Christ and he puts him as the lead apostle. He's the one in charge. He's the leader in the new covenant church. And he's first. The first four, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they're all uh, the first four in every list. The order of them changes a bit, but they're all, those four are all, all first in every list. And it reminds you that these four become Jesus' closest companions. Whenever something momentous is going to take place, whether it be the Mount of Transfiguration or even going to the Garden of Gethsemane, who does he take with him? He takes those four. They're his closest companions. Uh, and they accompany him in all these significant moments of his, time, of his life. <clears throat> you have Bartholomew, who is, that name is given in all four of those lists. But John, he gives him a different name. He calls him Nathaniel. It's not two different people. It's the same person, but he's got the two different names. Uh, Bartholomew, some suggest, means the son of Ptolemy, that that was his family name and perhaps his personal name <clears throat> was Nathaniel, but no need to be confused, just two names for the same person. The same is true with Matthew. Luke, when he recorded Luke, uh, Matthew's call <clears throat> by Jesus in, earlier in, this, in Luke, he refers to him as Levi. In all the lists of the apostles, his name is Matthew. But he goes by those two different names. Levi, perhaps his birth name, Matthew, what he became to be called as, uh, a, as an apostle. You have uh, another potentially confusing, in two of the lists you have the name Thaddeus. And in the two other lists you have the name Judas, the son of James. Again, not two different people, not a mistake. It's uh, two different names for the same person. Uh, he goes by Thaddeus on one hand and Judas, the son of James. <clears throat> and it's interesting in John, when he mentions this particular disciple, he calls him Judas, but then puts in parenthesis, not Iscariot. Uh, to be sure people understood this was, this was the Judas, the apostle, but not Judas Iscariot. And then you have the last one chosen, which is Judas Iscariot. And the question that may come to your mind, it comes to a lot of our minds, is why in the world did Jesus choose him? I mean, Jesus, the eternal son of God, knew what was in man knew the purposes of the Father, knew what would happen. Why in the world did he choose him? 
And you and I have to come to appreciate the <clears throat> work of election is election to grace, but sometimes it's an election to perdition. And, and it was in God's sovereign providential will that Judas be numbered among the apostles, but God would use him to betray the Messiah. But as we look at these, and Judas Iscariot was the only Judean, as we look at these men and just survey the list, the thing that's notable about it is there's nothing notable about them. They are all completely ordinary. Uh, Galileans, uh, they had a different uh, jobs. They, you know, they were uh, fishermen. Uh, they were ordinary people that God called. And he took ordinary people to turn upside down the world. And it's a reminder to you and me, <clears throat> it's, not, it's not the great and the mighty that God uses. I mean, he can use those and sometimes he does. But it's not the great and the mighty that God is looking for. He's looking for the ordinary. He's looking for the normal, the regular person. Paul will say, brethren, see your calling, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Paul will also say, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the all-surpassing power will be shown to be from God and not from us. Why does God want to use ordinary people like you and me? It's so that when his glory is revealed, everybody knows, well, it's not us, it's him. God uses the ordinary. God uses you. He calls you to love and to serve him. He calls these 12 to be instruments of his power and glory. And it's a wonderful reminder of his grace and his love and that you too are to be his servant. And that leads me to my third idea and that is how can we apply this to us and the application is that you too are called to be a servant of God. You're not called to be an apostle and it may not be an office to which you will be called, <clears throat> whether elder or deacon. But you are called to serve the Lord. Uh, in what ways can you do that? Well, this is just suggestive, but I want to take you to several different passages. The first is to go back to Ephesians 4. If you kept your finger there, just turn over to that again. Ephesians 4, which is much about the church and our life together and how we conduct ourselves along with Jesus pouring out his gifts upon us. If we, if we go back to the beginning of Ephesians 4, he writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You, you're called. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And you are called to serve the Lord and serve his church in humility and in gentleness and in patience and bearing with one another. Whenever you get two people together or more, there's always going to be things we don't see eye to eye on. In fact, I might say whenever you get alone, you have conflict. Because <clears throat> your mind and your, and your heart don't always agree. And who's going to win? But whenever we're together, whenever we, God puts us together, a group of us together, there's going to be differences. Differences of conviction, maybe. Differences of a point of view on, on variety. Certainly different personalities and interests. But you and I, as members of that church, we are to serve one another with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, remembering what it is that binds us together. What is it that binds us together? It's the gospel. It's Christ. He's the center place. <clears throat> He's the center point of our lives. He's the one that binds us together. And so we can... Be patient, because God's patient with us. How can we not be patient with one another? Staying in Ephesians 4, a second way you can serve one another, uh, just to look briefly at verse 7, it says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So we've been given grace, but then jumping down to verse 12, those offices of the church that God has given, what, what are they for? It says to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, <clears throat> attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Each of you believers has been given grace and the offices of the church are given to prepare you for works of service. You are to serve God and his church. And it's going to look a little different for everyone. Your talents, your abilities, your opportunities may be different than another person. You'll have strengths and weaknesses but God puts us all together because, because he's going to use us to help the church come to maturity, to grow up, so that we won't be blown here and there by every wind of doctrine, by all the cultural changes of our society. We'll have the foundation and bedrock of the truth. And you and I are called to serve him, the Lord, and his people. Maybe that will be doing something for them. Maybe it'll be preparing a meal. Maybe it's sending a card. Maybe it's offering a prayer. But in a variety of ways, God is calling you to serve him and serve one another. 
in that gentleness, patience that already characterizes <clears throat> your life. We're called to serve one another, to help the church grow up and be mature and stable and strong. Uh, turn then, please, to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. A third way to think about, these are suggested thoughts for how you can serve the Lord. It's not exhaustive by any means. <clears throat> but in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, or as the King James Version would have it, this is your reasonable service. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Because we have experienced God's mercy, we are to offer our lives, our bodies, our everything we are, everything we do, we're to offer that in service to the Lord. The reason the NIV makes it a spiritual act of worship, it's the two words are, it's your logical service, reasonable service, but the word service is not the normal word, but it's the word that does come out of our worship. And so what Paul's trying to communicate is the idea that <clears throat> everything we do in our life in response to the mercy and grace of God is an act of love and devotion to God. And we are to serve him. And in serving him, we serve one another as well. We don't conform to the thoughts of this world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our mind by scripture. It's scripture that governs us and guides us and conforms our minds. But you are called to serve. In small ways, doesn't have to be dramatic or grandiose, but you're called to serve the Lord, conforming your mind uh, to the word of God. And then the last thought is uh, in 1 Peter 3. So if you'd like to turn there to 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Another thought in terms of how you can serve. <clears throat> So 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason, the defense, the apologetic for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. <clears throat> Peter's not here trying to tell us to be argumentative people. But he does want us to be prepared to make a defense, make a, an apologetic, to make a, an explanation of the reason for the hope that we have. It begins with committing ourselves to the Lord, setting apart the Lord, uh, Christ as Lord in our hearts, and obviously reflecting on the word and his truth. <clears throat> but when someone comes up to you and asks you, how can you have joy in your tears? How can you do that? How is it possible for you to do that? I don't understand. 
That's your opportunity to say, well, it's not me. I'm ordinary like you. But it's Christ in me. It's Christ in me that's the hope of glory. And that's why I have joy even in my tears. Because I know him. And so Peter wants you to be prepared because <clears throat> it's going to happen at a moment's notice. But he, he wants you to be prepared that you can give an answer to those who ask you for the hope that you have. So as we reflect again on this passage, remember the urgency of prayer. Devote yourself to that. We live in humble, prayerful dependence upon God for everything. Be thankful for God's providence and how he provided those servants who would build his church, who would continue the ongoing ministry and maintenance of the church from whom we can gain many things. And remember that you too are called to be a servant of the Lord with your time and with your talents and with your treasure. You offer all of that to God and give it to him in whatever way you can. And he equips you with the power of his grace to live out your call. Just one more thing. Jesus, before he sent the apostles out <clears throat> to uh, take the gospel to all the world, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. You and I, when we serve the Lord in whatever way he gives us the opportunity to do that, we can do so with great confidence because the power isn't in us. All authority is in him. And because all authority and power is in him, we go forward in his strength. It's his power that's behind us. <clears throat> it's not our power that sends us forward. It's his power that sends us forward. So may you and I live in the strength of the power and grace of Almighty God, our loving and wonderful Savior, and serve him and one another in love. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the richness of your abundant love and how you laid the foundation for your church and how you give us the privilege to serve you and uh, to, to serve one another. And we ask, O oh Lord, for you to help us to do that. As you bring things to mind that we can perhaps do that are, will benefit one another, may we act on those and Lord, just help us to conform our thoughts and thinking to your word and your truth. And may you, O oh Lord, build your church and cause us to mature and become strong, able to withstand the, the winds that will seek to blow us astray. May you be glorified in all this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.